0: Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan and relevant. We go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. Aaron Jones here, your host, coming to you with Ben Gadan, who is our acting Latin America director, but also a podcaster. He uh, he has a couple of podcasts that are available through the Wilson Center as well, and we'll promote those a little bit later on. But Ben, welcome back to the. Need to Know Podcast.
1: Thank you very much. I'm here mostly for that promotional leg
0: up. You know, I'm still waiting for my invite so I can do some promotion, huh? (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, I understand completely because I am not a Latin America expert at all. And uh, you, you you need experts on your podcasts. And so that's why I bring you on. You were there at the Summit of the Americas last week and i wanted to bring you on to talk a little bit about this because uh, there there was a, there was really a lot of negative not really negative i guess but but sort of uh, questioning coverage of the efficacy of having this summit and what united states ability to really sway our hemispheric neighbors to our policies so I want to get a sense from you, have being on the ground there, uh, what, what you thought of the summit.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, Aaron, I was not alone in Los Angeles. There were, there were other people who came. Um, and so, you know, there had been this big campaign to, to boycott the summit. Um, you know, it was based mostly on this dispute over whether all leaders in the Western Hemisphere should be invited or whether only democratic governments should be included. And I think it took the Biden administration by surprise how ferociously, um, many countries pushed back against the notion that the United States as hosts would take it upon itself to decide which country should participate and which should not. And so there were threats from Argentina, threats from Brazil, threats from Mexico of, of not appearing in Los Angeles at all unless Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela were also invited. As it turned out, most of that was bluster. Most of the big countries, Colombia, Argentina, Brazil, were represented. There were some no-shows, and so we can talk about that. But, you know, you had over 20 heads of state, heads of government in Los Angeles. You had lots of civil society representatives. You had lots of activists. You had serious discussion and serious issues. And I think, all in all, the summit is a really valuable institution. I mention that because in the run-up to the summit, there were calls for ending the entire process, given all the drama and the very low expectations for the gathering.
0: And Yeah, you see all these uh, countries that did have some challenges to the United States invite list. And like you said, some of that was just bluster. But is that playing well at home? Because some of these are democratic countries that you're talking about, right? But supposedly they're cozying up to some of their authoritarian neighbors. What's the dynamic there?
1: Yeah, I think, you know, all in all, it was a self-defeating strategy, in my view, by by many leaders, and, and frankly, sort of bizarre. I mean, there's not much that Cuba, Nicaragua, and Venezuela have to offer the region. This is not the heyday where Venezuela was flush with cash. And was able to spread it around the region. These are pretty much bankrupt countries with, you know, appalling human rights records. And so, why did they get so much support for this? You know, it's hard to say, and it's idiosyncratic. In the case of Mexico, I think it did play well locally. The idea of standing up to the United States, even if standing up on behalf of some pretty uh, unsavory regimes. When it came to countries like El Salvador and Guatemala, I think they were just looking for an excuse not to be lectured about their own poor democratic records and, and high levels of corruption. So this and seemed very high-minded, but really, they didn't want to be there at all because they're on pretty poor standing with the United States. And so, you know, the reasons differ, some of them genuinely based on ideology, some of it domestic politics, some of it kind of fear of being called out for some really bad conduct at home. You put all that together and, and a little dash of declining U.S. influence in the region, and you got this boycott campaign that, though it didn't fully realize itself, Did distract a lot of energy and diplomatic muscle from building an impressive agenda for the summit itself
0: and probably the one the the one no-show that really made the news a lot was mexico's president amlo now mexico was represented mexico was there but not in the form of their head of state so uh, were there any other big no-shows, and, and what's the significance of, of Mexico's participation or non-participation there?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, Mexico has a close relationship with the United States. It's inescapable. It's it's important to counter-narcotics and security, economic integration. And because of that, there's an enormous number of high-level dialogues. There's dialogues of all North American leaders, including Canada. There's bilateral dialogues on every issue under the sun. You know, So I, I think on one level, look, President Biden, President Lopez Obrador, they didn't need to meet in Los Angeles. They meet plenty um, in other venues. On the other hand, I think the symbolism was disturbing, given all the reasons I just mentioned of the importance of the relationship. One would think the Mexican leader wouldn't insult the United States leader so unnecessarily and so publicly in such an important moment. And also, why deprive this hemisphere gathering of the perspective of Mexico, one of the the most important actors? And I'll say in particular, given that migration was a big subject. You know, the, the summit produced this Los Angeles Declaration on Migration. And guess who wasn't there? The president of Mexico and the presidents of El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. Those combined represent most of the sources of migration to the United States and most of the solutions as well.
0: Well, what does that, what does that mean for that particular agreement then? Does it have any teeth or legs?
1: I think the agreement was well-informed. There'd been a conference in Panama before the summit attended by the U.S. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. Um, I think, you know, the issue was understood and a lot of the countries who signed on, including in South America, have their own migration challenges that really were addressed, including the absorption of these 6 million Venezuelan migrants who, you know, largely have stayed in the region in places like Colombia and Ecuador. We, the Wilson Center, hosted the presidents of Colombia and Ecuador while at the summit to discuss this very issue. So what I would say is it was valuable. It's an important declaration. It should move more resources to the region to help integrate these migrants. But yeah, it's difficult to say that it's a comprehensive understanding of the problem and its solutions without
0: some of the most key leaders in the region at the table. I want to bring up the issue of China because, you know, when you have a summit like this, it seems to put into stark relief the difference in the approach of the United States and the difference in the approach of, approach of China. Because you have China coming in to a lot of these countries with real hard offers in hand of saying that we will build, we will bring infrastructure, we will do this and that, and it's an economic benefit is what they're saying. Whereas the United States comes with much more soft things like agreements and you know maybe we'll have this and that. How is the How is the United States viewed uh, when you go to a summit like this, when all this is kind of happening in the background with China?
1: It's fashionable, Aaron, in Washington to talk about great power competition between the United States and China. Um, It's not clear the U.S. is competing, however. Um, So I think that's what the summit kind of brought into stark relief, right? That the United States talks a lot about its genuine and I think legitimate concerns about Chinese conduct in the Americas and the potentially negative impact but offers very few meaningful alternatives. What could those alternatives be? Investment in infrastructure and market access, right? That's what China brings to bear. And I think there were hopes, though not high expectations, that the United States would use this summit, this very prominent platform to to change its approach and to say, okay, we understand that we can't simply go to the region and warn you about China and lecture you about the difficult investment climate that hinders investment from U.S. private companies, but that the U.S. had to start saying, okay, we have multi-billion dollar projects that we're willing to support for highways and ports and railroads, all the infrastructure that would make the region uh, more competitive economically, less dependent on commodity exports, and the U.S. didn't do so. Um, The U.S. simply did not come to the table with significant new resources, and it wasn't unnoticed. Uh, The same is true for trade. You have a Trans-Pacific Partnership. You had two countries, at least in the region, Uruguay and Ecuador, that have been begging for free trade agreements, preferring the U.S. to China on trade, and have gotten no serious responses. The U.S. did announce a new economic framework for conversations to better integrate and support the movement of supply chains to Latin America. I don't want to say that we ignored economic development and economic recovery issues, not at all. But, but the headline remains, sadly, no significant new funding no significant new trade agenda
0: well what you just said there really just kind of encapsulated my whole question too is like we come up with a framework for discussion like that that that's not what china's bringing to the table right
1: no absolutely i mean i think the whole approach
0: is a gift to china
1: China sat on the sidelines, of uh, luxuriating in the criticism of the organization of the summit, sort of trolling the United States by calling it the Monroe Doctrine when the U.S. decided dictatorships didn't attend. Of course, holding its arms wide open to dictatorships and its own engagement in the region. But most of all, it comes down to investment in trade, Aaron. And I think China was very pleased to see that the United States was not putting significant new resources in the region or offering significant new market access. Those are the most potent tools. And on that score, the White House came to the summit with both hands tied behind its back.
0: How's the current uh, economic situation affecting Latin America? And how was, was that brought up at the summit or, or, or maybe even an underlying theme of the, of the discussion?
1: So the region is, is on its knees, Aaron. And that's why there's such a desperate desire for the United States to be much more engaged, but also this tremendous opportunity to build and rebuild U.S. influence in the region through economic engagement. Now, Latin America was on a very poor growth trajectory before the pandemic. There was already talk of another lost decade, this idea of slow or even negative growth in so many parts of the region, this failure to sustain increases in the middle class that had come from a previous period of high commodity prices. And so there were a lot of what, what's often called pre-existing conditions going into the pandemic. You know, high deficits, high debt, um, not very dynamic economies, very vulnerable to changing commodity prices. Everything is much worse now. You know, all of the, the, the debt has been explosive during the pandemic because of uh, obvious necessity for emergency spending. You have not seen economies become more competitive during this period. Um, and so it's emerging from the pandemic in a really fragile state. And yet another reason why I think there was some expectation that the United States would be a little bolder when it came to investing in the region, if not for humanitarian reasons, um, if not for great power competition reasons, reasons, then at least for stabilizing the region, right? There's this other motivation. We haven't talked about the state of democracy in the Western hemisphere, but there's a grave concern about the quality of democracies in the hemisphere. And one main reason for that is the economic decline which has eroded support for democracy and created big openings for authoritarian figures to emerge.
0: With the the global oil price situation, has that changed Venezuela's situation any?
1: Yeah, the increase in commodity prices is a double-edged sword in Latin America, including for the oil producers. So there's an opportunity um, for many of the countries, including places like Argentina, Brazil, Colombia, um, Ecuador, that are also oil exporters, natural gas exporters, to benefit from higher prices. Um, The same is true for the global food insecurity, another huge opportunity for places like Brazil, Uruguay, Paraguay, Argentina, Um, the rise in prices for minerals, the copper and lithium in places like Chile and Peru and Argentina. So I would say the, the commodity price increase is an opportunity broadly for Latin America and an opportunity for the United States to deepen supply chains. And so I think, you know, on that score, this kind of very difficult global moment could be um, some tailwinds for the region. On the other hand, inflation is off the charts again because of increases in the price of energy and the price of food. Even for farm producers, their own input costs, largely energy, are much higher. Fertilizer prices are much higher. Um, energy prices across the board are, are causing rising inflation and, and making politics more difficult. So what I would say, even outside Venezuela, is, is it is a double-edged sword, but there are some some real opportunities. When it comes to Venezuela, as always, it's much more complex a question because Venezuela is is an enormously sanctioned country um, that is now no longer integrated in the United States energy system and so whether the demand for Venezuelan oil will shake the u.s policy toward Venezuela is a different question but for now it's difficult for Venezuela to, to take advantage of the higher prices
0: well as you can see dear listener you can tell that uh, Ben is extremely knowledgeable and I could just keep going and 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 any question I throw at him on Latin America he always has, the most interesting answer and he he never just answers just the question like like just for example I asked him about Venezuela he gave us he gave us in 15 seconds the entire economic picture of the continent and that's why I love interviewing Ben Gadan thanks so much for being with us Ben
1: thanks for your interest in Latin
0: America Aaron well let me give you a chance to uh to plug your podcast
1: sure I appreciate that yeah as you alluded to earlier I juggle a few I co-host a Wilson Center-wide podcast on the Americas in partnership with our Mexico Institute, our Brazil Institute, um, our Canada Institute, and, of course, our Latin American program. That's called America's 360. We also have a podcast exclusively on Brazil, one exclusively on Argentina, and another one called Plaza Central that looks at all of Latin America, um, political issues, economic issues, humanitarian issues, human rights issues, democracy, U.S. foreign policy, you name it. Um, you can find all of those listed on the comprehensive Wilson Center podcast website um, and on all your favorite podcast platforms. So we welcome your suggestions for for themes uh, that we should be touching on.
0: Well, thank you, Ben. And as he mentioned, you can find all of those at wilsoncenter.org slash podcasts. And we have a ton on the Americas. We got ourselves like a whole Monroe Doctrine side of our podcasting. That, that is not how we brand
1: it. Um, <laughs> yes. We do, we do a lot of podcasts showing interest and partnership in the Americas. I would, I would put it that way. What we don't have, Aaron, is our own uh, theme music that we have composed. So
0: we're not quite at your level of podcasting yet. But Indeed. Uh, well, the Need to Know podcast does contract out for music for other podcasts if needed. Uh-huh. And and I will say one of the other Western Hemisphere podcasts, which was a, a short-run project called Spotlight Justice for Women. I did produce that, and I did do the music for that. So if you just can't get enough of Aaron Jones's theme music, that's another one that you can... Oh, no, no,
1: we We, we can get enough. We just don't know if we can cover your royalties.
0: Well, the Wilson Center is a nonprofit. So, <laughs> well, kidding aside the i think what we've what we've got here is an amazing amount of intellectual firepower on the western hemisphere we have a canada institute we have a mexico institute we have a latin america program we have a brazil institute we really do get have this this area covered and ben gadana is a key integral part of that so thanks so much for being with us ben many thanks there